The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, you're about to listen to episode 8 of the podcast. What's happening at town halls across the United States? Is there a popular groundswell of resistance and opposition to President Trump's agenda building momentum on the left? Is it sustainable? Would a Tea Party of the left be a constructive or destructive force in American politics? In this episode, we welcome our first guest co-host, Sarah Ullman, a filmmaker, activist, and co-founder of the grassroots super PAC, One Vote at a Time. We discuss our experiences in recent months attending town halls and political protests. We're tough on California Senator Dianne Feinstein. We talk about 2018, the instant messenger handles of our youth, and further destroy the idea that the government is, or should be, run like a business. This is Robot F. Kennedy. So uh, the two topics we generally want to cover today are town halls and super PACs, mm-hmm. or political action committees in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to start with town halls. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the one of the really big reasons, other than you being a cool and intelligent person, is uh, that I want to do on the show is that um, I've been aware of your efforts um, uh, in, in recent history, uh, organizing showing up at town halls, you seem to have been really um, politically motivated and active your whole life, but the last, the events of the last six to 12 months have kind of really accelerated that for a lot of us. And you've been um, kind of putting your, I don't want to say money where your mouth is, but like quite frankly, your body where your mouth is. Something you've said to me and and publicly um, is that one of the best things we can do is show up with our bodies, that it's, it's uh, easy to ignore an email or a voicemail, but it's really hard to ignore a human body standing in front of an office or standing in a town hall. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, you can start whenever in your kind of political life, but I would love to talk to focus specifically on the last six to 12 months and some of your efforts organizing some meetings with the staffs of uh, certain senators, your uh, presence at town halls. I've also been going to some town halls. I think we've all been getting a lot more politically active. So I want to start there. I've got a few points I want to hit, but I'd also don't want to, we value here a good conversation over hitting bullet points. Yeah, totally. So, um, I guess last six to 12 months, my, I'll, I'll start a little bit farther back and then jump to, um, so I, I'm from Connecticut and I am actually from the, uh, district that Chris Murphy, who is now Connecticut Senator, uh, represented when he was in, uh, the house of representatives. And so I worked on his first campaign. Like I remember his first meeting that he had, um, when he announced to volunteers that he was going to run and he wanted to, uh, you know, rally the troops to, to volunteer on his campaign. My dad took me. And so, I interned with him also after the, my junior year, the summer of my junior year. And then, so jump forward, um, last summer, he did a filibuster after the Orlando nightclub shooting. And um, he was filibustering to force a vote in the Senate about uh, background checks, right? He, and and another uh, another piece of legislation, but uh, essentially to, filibust- to force the Senate to confront uh, gun safety and gun violence issues after the Pulse nightclub shooting. I remember watching uh, and and just being so inspired by him and inspired by his actions. And obviously, his leadership on the issue is was not certainly not his choice to take the lead there. Right? It's because of of Newtown that he really came out in front of this. But um, now he is where he is, and he is leading the charge. And I just was so tired after the nightclub shooting, just so devastated and so tired of 
tweeting and calling and donating. Uh, you know, I was doing all those things that I thought that I should be doing, but I realized, uh, oh, here's this this person that I've worked with before that I that I'm inspired by, and so I yeah I decided that I wanted to put my skills behind the issue, and so. Started to thinking, started thinking about what it means to be a filmmaker and attack one of these issues, and also my knowledge of dis- digital distribution. And I do a lot of work with um, advertisers and marketing, and how to target people and how to get people to purchase something or or make a transaction. And so, anyways, just got to thinking about how to apply my skills in that way. So that was kind of the my resurgence, I would say, of my m- political action. I mean, I, I had spent the last few, like the last years, like working for the Transformers producer and like working on YouTube stuff, you, you know, and just kind of, I, I just sat there and I was like, this is so silly. What is, you know, this matters. This is, uh, and, and so picked that thread back up. Um, and the, the work, the work in terms of organizing and, and town halls, was really inspired by my own frustration trying to get through to Senator Feinstein's office. Uh, the Senate, the senators, they, you know, have 40 million constituents in California. And so their phone lines have just been absolutely slammed. And I remember calling again and again and again and, and just not being able to get through to anyone. There was no voicemail. And I was like, okay, this is some <laughs> bullshit right here. You know, because you're like, if at the very, if you're going to call at the very least. Um, I, I want to jump in really quickly. Um, and I want to, I don't know how much I should preface this. Um, I had a, I've been calling all of my representatives. I try to make it a daily routine now, Mm -hmm. actually, which is so obnoxious of me. And I've had the same experience of not being able to get through to Senator, Senator Dianne Feinstein. I do not have the same problem with Kamala Harris, who represents the same number of constituents. Furthermore, um, there's something that uh, I, I read uh, in the LA Times that I want to reference briefly um, in an article about Diane Feinstein's town hall last week that we were both at, although I didn't get to see you there. I was shocked and angered when I read that this was her second town hall of her entire career. Um, and the first one was last week in San Francisco. I think a lot of people are... Not a lot of people. That's the way Donald Trump talks, and I'm going to refuse to talk that way. <laughs> I'm not going to place thoughts on vague other people. I think Diane Feinstein um, is uh, one of a, uh, let's say, a caucus of senators um, who is, I think, becoming increasingly out of touch uh, with modernity and with uh, the issues that are important to a lot of people today. I think one tiny symptom of that is the fact that she can't, it seems like a technological problem to me that you get a busy signal or a voicemail box that's full when you call Diane Feinstein's office and not when you call Kamala Harris's office. Finally, the fact that she has represented the state of California and the Senate for 10% of American history and for 15% of the statehood of California. <laughs> and she had her second town hall of her career last week. I think that that's an, indef- I think that's indefensible. So that's my, my little interruption and my little bit of outrage, but I wanted to get reactions from both of you on that. I mean, a lot of that is indefensible. I mean, two town halls in 25 years she's been there, right? Or 24. Yeah, that's indefensible. And the technological aspect of not of getting a busy signal rather than a voicemail, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, 
It doesn't make any sense. Like the number, the percentages, things, that's a little disingenuous, I feel. But so I agree with you that our representatives at every level should make themselves more um, available to their constituents. But I don't necessarily, that to me doesn't line up to like, oh, she isn't doing her job. That I mean, there may be other th- reasons that you can convince or that someone can convince me that she's not doing her job, but that alone isn't. I interviewed a professor at Tufts that I used to uh, study with a little bit, and his name is Peter Levine, and he's the director for this place called Circle, the Center for Information and Research on Civic Engagement and Learning, something, I don't know, I'm, I've clearly messed up that <laughs> acronym, Circle, um, but uh, he was talking to me about the different models of, of representation. I was working for an artic- uh, on an article for the LAist about how to visit your elected represent, uh, representatives. So the, the different models of representation being, you know, the delegate model of, of representation. Uh, I forget what the second one's called, but essentially there there's, are, are you electing someone to simply reflect the will of the people Or are you electing someone to absorb the will of the people and make decisions that they feel are the most well-advised or the most appropriate? And, you know, the Senate, of course, is a deliberative body, um, some air quotes there. And so my feeling is that the, the issue that Senator Feinstein is having right now is that the base is so engaged right now that we need our representatives to be reflective of our will because the engagement is so passionate and so pointed and so necessary. And she is of of the model where she's absorbing what we're saying and making the decision that she feels is best to be made which infuriates a lot of people you know i think her example uh of of someone asking if if she would embrace bernie sanders medicare for all bill and she said i won't commit to supporting it you know i will meet with him but i won't commit to supporting it and the idea that it, it felt it felt that she was I felt that she was being honest with us and giving us the hard answer that she felt that that we needed to get but I think that she is mis she's misreading the mood you know and that's why her mailbox is perpetually full and Senator Harris's is not I think because I think Senator Harris is correctly reading the mood of her constituents and the mood of her of the of the, the base and I think Senator Feinstein is aware of where we are but has this older model, or this not older because it's still a valid model, but just as like, you know, views herself as a, a deliberative representative rather than a, an outright reflection of what the people want. So I guess I'm having trouble understanding. So the reflective kind of side of it is like Senator A, we vote for him or her, and then he or she is constantly taking the pulse of their constituents and then voting that way. So their views over time could shift in either direction to depending on the constituency. And then Senator B, we vote for them based on kind of their beliefs. And the idea is that they're going to vote according to the, you know, the, the lens through which they view politics. And when that no longer reflects the constituents, we vote them out. 
Correct. Essentially, yeah. It's the trustee model versus the delegate model. So, yes, you're electing a person who you believe is the right person that reflects your values and, and your uh, your desires and your positions on various issues. But then you've trusted, you've entrusted that person to then make decisions for you. Mm-hmm. It's, I, it sounds like um, the lowercase d democratic model versus the lowercase r Republican representative representation model, right? How so? The the delegate model would be um, to oversimplify or to make it technological, right? If if, uh, Kamala Harris could have, if Senator Harris could have an app that would in real time tell her what the uh, millions of citizens of the state of California believe on an issue, and then she was just a conduit for casting a vote based on the majority of Californians' beliefs, um, that would be a lowercase d democratic, Mm -hmm. direct Mm -hmm. uh, representation democratic model, whereas if she says, uh, I either... I am I am a, a, a an experienced um, uh, diplomatically oriented um, highly educated person this is my mental framework and the way that I think about the world and you're electing me not to directly reflect in real time the your will you're reflecting me to represent a broad coalition of interests the interests of the state at large and perhaps be a control on direct democracy or if you want to put it in a certain paradigm uh, mob rule right there's the mob rule versus the Mm -hmm. representative. In some ways, people think that this is the reflective of the the way that the founders envisioned the two houses of Congress, right? right? So so Senator Harris and Senator Feinstein are in the more deliberative body. But I think that the way that they are behaving right now and the way that they're talking and the way that they're uh, framing their positions on issues is almost... Divergent. Yeah, so just to give background on that. So the House, for all of time, has been up for re-election every two years. And, yeah, it's that it's the idea that it, they're directly kind of connecting to their constituents, whereas the Senate is once every six years. And originally they weren't um, elected, elected. Yeah, by the citizens. They were chosen by state legislatures. So I was just going to say, I to out my own feelings and opinions, I, I think the framework, I, would, I think I would agree with with Senator Feinstein and Senator Harris, I do believe the Senate should be a more deliberative body. And I'm not, I don't have qualms with that. I think you stated, Sarah, very well um, about reading the room better or communicating better. It's not that I think Senator Feinstein should have a real-time pulse on the beliefs of 50% plus one of California constituents. I would say, how can she, what are her data points? How could she inform her worldview and gather her data to effectively deliberate on behalf of Californians if she's only had two town halls in her entire career. Like she's everyone's getting information from somewhere and I'm not going to pick fights because everyone's got their own opinions as to what the best sources of information are. Some one person might say you should have town halls every week forever. Uh, Other people say that's ridiculous. You should listen to the scientific community and only do what they say. Other people say you should go to a church and listen to what God says. There there are a lot of models and then there are models. um, There are models that hybridize all of those inputs. I'm just saying that I, I would value, I would rank people's, uh, feelings, what they're worried about, um, what keeps them up at night. I would rate that very highly. Uh, I would not make it the one and only input, but I think I would assume that if a senator is not conducting regular town halls, who is that senator meeting with? And 
how is that skewing the way that they're deliberating? Is it is it the um, individuals that they've called to testify before the House Intelligence Committee? That might be a very valid input for her deliberation, maybe a highly valuable one. But should it be the only one at the expense of the town halls with the constituents and citizens of the state of California? Yeah. And the question is about the, of course, about the town hall format, too. Like, is that the most constructive way of actually having conversations with constituents? I don't know. I I, I clearly believe in them, right? I uh, organized a meeting with Senator Feinstein's staff uh, for a group for, for my community to have a hopefully constructive a conversation with the staff. I think it worked out worked out well. Of course, that was with the staff and not with the senator herself, which is another question, right? You know, is is a lot of are how many people are her staff talking to, and and how do they filter up the information to her? And I, I think that that this this push and pull here is almost illustrated by the her lack of commitment to fil- filibustering Neil Gorsuch until sort of the last, the 11th hour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she did get on board with the filibuster. Um, but her position and the position that her staff relayed to us was that she wanted all the information first before she made a decision, right? She wanted to interview him and, you know, she interviewed him and came out and said that he was highly impressive, right? And uh, she wanted she wanted to understand the full scope of, of who it was that was being presented to her before she made a decision. And I think that for a lot of, for, for her, her cons- many of her constituents and for her base, it wasn't about whoever it was in front of her. And so that miss, and, and, and her argument was that I can only do this effectively. I can only filibuster effectively if I can say that I've met with him and he's not, mm-hmm. he's not uh, fit for the Supreme Court. Something that a tremendous influence Eddie has had on me in my life. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> is of looking at looking at a lot of things in life, but specifically applicable to this conversation, political things, as when you get down to it, stories about real people and what they're going through. Stories about families, stories about uh, mealtimes, stories about fears, stories about sickness and uh, heartbreak and and pain and death sometimes, joy and celebration other times, achievement. And at that town hall, I saw a lot of people. Some of them were highly informed, had their works cited pages spoke calmly others were effectively participating in a primal scream in front of the senator but her reaction to that i thought was largely inappropriate her reaction was i would characterize it as you think what you think but I've got a lot of information, particularly with some of those Syria questions. Like there are things I've I the the secret knowledge, the kind of mid medieval Catholic priest kind of talking <laughs> point of like I know some things that you don't know, so just trust me to make the right decisions for you. While that might be an accurate statement of reality, I think it emotionally completely misses the mark because you've got people that either are unemployed showing up in the middle of the day on a work day, or you've got people that care so much that they're taking the time out of their work day, their school day, whatever, to show up and engage with their elected senator and for her to react to their, um, whether they're thoroughly researched or not, very human and very deeply emotional fears and needs with 
kind of, uh, in my opinion, kind of condescension in a way. I thought that was a tremendous misread, not only of that room, but also of the electorate today. And also, I, I think broadly what people across the political spectrum, even deeply conservative people, and I think we can point to the Tea Party for this, what people in the modern United States of America are looking for from their elected representatives. They're looking for an emotional connection. I think that's um, about the town hall. Accurate. And again, I wasn't there, but like that is also her job to listen and, you know, have an empathetic response that accurately reads the room. I have something to say along these lines, which is that, you know, I think about how much I love the Dodgers and they're losing right now bad a lot. They lost last night to the Giants. And they there are people on Twitter who want to trade trade the whole team. And luckily those of us who are on Twitter are not running the team. That's kind of how I feel about my own politics and kind of the what I've seen at some of these town halls is like, yeah, it's one thing for me to believe that, you know, the highest tax brackets should be paying 90% taxes. We should have, you know, everything imaginable, right? I mean, I don't really think that, but you understand what I'm saying. But it's up to my elected officials to go like, okay, that's a great idea, but no, we're not going to do that. Isn't there some room for that also? And I guess another road I'm coming from is that like everyone complains about partisan gridlock, but yet all we want is our elected officials to be even more partisan. It's like, no, 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 everyone else should agree, but my guy should be even more to the left or more to the right. How do we overcome that? I I think that I am completely and 100 percent interested in improving the lives of the people using government as a tool, Mm -hmm. right? And I think in order to get there, government needs to function. And in order for government to function, it needs to, there needs to be cooperation, there needs to be compromise, people need to talk, there needs to be not, you know, partisan gridlock needs to be loosened and and ironed out and people, there needs to be civility. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think that this particular political climate has moved beyond normal politics and normal the normal use of the government i'm i'm a little scared mm-hmm. by what's happening now and I, I do believe that right now on all levels of government the republican party and the Democrats are, are guilty of this, too. It's, a, it's in some ways, I'm sure. But right now, it's pretty uh, there's a clear concerted effort to destroy a lot of the things that make our government work or destroy government in general for power. Right. And I think you can look at what's happening in North Carolina as a as a good example of mm-hmm. this, where the democratically the Democrat and also democratically elected governor is being challenged by and challenge is a nice word. But there's a, essentially the legis, the Congress uh, is, is trying to legislate away many of his powers. Right. Mm-hmm. His ability to appoint judiciary, how many seats he has on there, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I see versions of that. That in our federal government, I mean, you know, we don't have to go down the Trump rabbit hole here. Right. But unfortunately, I nobody believes in in the power of the government to change lives of people, et cetera, more than I do. But I think now is a different time where I think 
I expect and I hope that my elected representatives will lock arms and like pull a Gandalf like <laughs> you shall not pass, you know, because I, I, otherwise it it runs it runs ramp the corruption runs rampant the kleptocracy runs rampant and it's and to some degree i it, it, the tit for tat makes me uncomfortable but i see where we're headed now the tit for tat worked for the republicans right obstructionism worked for the republicans now they're in power and they're just barreling over all the things and so i was in support of a filibuster even though i knew that it would result in the in the nuclear option mm-hmm. um because i don't think that you can simply democrats can can stand aside and say after you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I think I think this is a different time, and I, and it breaks my heart to feel that way. But I I think that that's why Senator Feinstein, for me, feels <laughs> to bring it back. Uh, I think that's why Senator Feinstein, for me, feels like she's so out of touch because she still believes that we are where she came from, she's, and we're just not. I think she's playing the wrong game. It's it's. Yeah, she yeah she's out of touch. She's also like 80, 82, 84. Four, I think, yeah. 84. Which Eddie thinks I'm being ageist every time I bring that up, but <laughs> I I bring it up simply because I think I think there's a lot of things that she's carrying from her years of experience, both good and bad. And I I value her seniority specifically on the intelligence. Mm-hmm committee and on the uh, judiciary. I value her. I value Senator Feinstein's seniority uh, because I think she has a lot of influence to throw around there. And I think she's important in that way. And I think California would lose a a valuable voice if we lost her. Mm -hmm. But I do think with her age, she also carries just like a lot of the the dissonance that technology and communication, she, she, she feels... She won't, you know, we suggested to her, you should do a Facebook Live every week where you just sit there and say, hi, I'm the senator and here's what I'm working on this week and maybe take a couple questions from the comments, right? What would she say to that? I mean, I said this to her staff and and they said, that's a great idea. We'll bring it back to the senator. And it's so easy. I just want to walk up to her and turn on my camera and be like, say hi, you know, (laughs) because that's all people. That's all we in in many ways, that's not all we need, but that's that's the beginning, and mm-hmm. she won't do it. And I and I think she's trying, and she's, you know, they're like she's on the, all the cable news shows, and you're like, guess who doesn't have cable? Have cable. Yeah. <laughs> Me. <laughs> yeah. I I want to use something you said a minute ago to push forward another uh, topic, and it's you were talking about how, how these times. I'm paraphrasing here, but these times feel abnormal. And something's got to be done. I think you called to mind the mental image of them locking elbows. I agree with you. I have a fear, however. My fear is that I think that the... I personally believe that the Tea Party movement that started in 2009, 2010, 2011, and uh, its most organized political force, the House Freedom Caucus, are very destructive and counterproductive elements to our civil discourse. And I start to see some echoes of that in the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. 
and my there's a voice in my head that is so down with it, right? It's like, well, this worked for the Republicans. We have to fight fire with fire. Let's go all in, right? And there's a part of me that goes, this is very reactive. And what's the longer term strategic game we're playing? Do you see... Do you agree with some of the talking points that are coming out of the media that there is a Tea Party of the left arising? Do you think... If so, do you think that that's a positive force? And then, depending on that answer, what's the end game, right? Or, or maybe not end game. Maybe there is no end game. But where are where are we? Where does this road go in the next two, four, six, eight years? A short little anecdote at, at that Senator Feinstein's town hall. I brought my phone and I was live streaming from the side of the room. So I went all the way to the left and kind of got up front, but but out of the crowd to so that I could live stream. And there was a, um, a man wearing a, a Hawaiian shirt and carrying a 5D and he was filming the meeting. And he there were there were people sitting around me, mostly members of the media, I think. And he kind of walked in front of everyone and just planted himself there and started filming and was also like yelling as well. And, you know, there were a couple times where I tapped him on the shoulder and was like, hey, I'm behind, you know, there's people with ca- other cameras behind <laughs> you. You know, can you please move to the side? And he kind of sneered at us. And then he was also yelling so that it was at some points hard to hear the senator's answer. And I said to myself, stop yelling, you know, not, not at him, but just kind of like frustrated to myself, like, stop yelling. Why are we yelling? And he still blocking my view, turned around, leans down, looks at me and tries to look into my camera and says, this is what democracy looks like. It was so, it was so representative for me of what I, what, what is so infuriating about the left, the the very far left of our party. And I am in lockstep with them on many of the principles. Mm -hmm. I am so far apart on tactics and on language and on the way uh, I was glad when Tom Perez course corrected the Democratic Party. There was a recent flare up when Bernie Sanders went to stunt for an anti-choice candidate and the women of the party were like, no, this is not a battle we're going to fight with it, fight anymore. If you're a Democrat, you're pro-choice and otherwise you're not welcome here because we have to there, there has to be some cohesion. Um, and I think we, you know, of course, you can talk about it, who you lose then. But the, the, the place where we go, I think is is a hard one it's hard one to read to read the tea leaves I, well I want to actually talk about that yeah. that is a mayoral candidate in Omaha yeah right I think that a Democrat who's running for mayor of Omaha should be allowed to believe whatever he wants hmm. I think that it's irresponsible for someone uh, you know who has as much cred as Bernie Sanders to be then stumping for him but I think that it's important for the Democratic Party to reflect kind of Democratic Party values wherever that wherever we are. I think that that's how we remain competitive. Something that Nick and I have talked about is how badly the Democratic Party does in state legislatures and governor's houses through most of the country. And I'm afraid, I mean, I am so pro-choice, but I'm afraid that those kinds of like, you're either with us or, or you're out of the party is going to be dangerous for us. I mean, that's exactly the 
danger of the this is what democracy looks like guy who's yeah. standing in front of you, you know? I mean, isn't there room? Again, I don't, I wouldn't, if I lived in Omaha, I wouldn't vote for that guy. Yeah. But isn't there room for that? But uh, choice is not like many other issues, right? Because choice is about autonomy is is about a, a human right mm-hmm. you know so there are other issues where you can say even guns right i'm very passionate about about gun safety and gun violence but i recognize that it there is uh it is enshrined in our constitution in some form mm-hmm. right what that the debate is there but but the issue with choice is that if you are anti-choice you are denying the full humanity of many of your own constituents. And I think it's a person who, I, I believe that, right? Because mm-hmm. if you if you don't have the choice to, to get an abortion or not get an abortion, then you don't have control over your body. And I'm, you know, re- repeating platitudes, but I, I believe that because for me, it stands separate and apart from mm. other issues where you can take a, a stance or not. It's it's a human right to be able to have bodily autonomy and to say, this is don't touch me, do touch me. This is what I want to have happen inside and, and outside of my own personal body, my, my flesh and blood, my skin, my womb, right? And so it's, it's a different thing it's not an it's not really an issue for me it's mm-hmm. a right and so that puts it on a separate uh plane and don't get me wrong st- strategically will it will it really hurt democrats to deny resources or to deny bernie sanders to go campaign for some you know mayoral candidate in omaha mm-hmm. maybe th- he might lose that race now because of this you know this issue and i went to Louisiana to campaign for Foster Campbell, right? I I myself have gone door to door knocking for a candidate who is anti-choice. So I recognize the difference when it's about strategy, when pragmatism mm-hmm. comes into play. But do I believe that like our party leaders and our um, membership to our party should have choice be I'd be happy to have Foster Campbell in the Senate if he would caucus with Democrats, just like I'm happy to have Bernie Sanders in the Senate because he caucuses with Democrats, even though he's not a Democrat. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to call yourself a Democrat, I think that you have to be on board with human rights and 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 human rights include choice. So for me, that's why that's where I come from. I'm going to stay out of my thoughts and beliefs, uh, fully pro-choice, but nobody needs to hear a man talk about that. Um, (laughs) What I do want to say is that I've always been confused. The pro-choice movement and the legal philosophy that has uh, grown up around the issue of choice in a very funny way, not funny, there's nothing funny about it, in a very curious way, seems so conservative and I don't mean that as a value judgment at all, but I'm talking about like lowercase c conservative, where the right to bodily autonomy, the right to be able to do what you want, and the right to, I mean, it's you can hear the same, the same philosophical talking points of stay, keep your hands off my body, stay out of my bedroom, stay off my land, right? It's like there's a Clive and Bundy gay marriage and pro-choice like th- like totally. thread there that's very, very American. It's not very 
necessarily very liberal. It's it's there are a lot of ways when we're talking at a very high level in a political science capacity about the lowercase l liberal, lowercase c conservative, uh, hundreds of years long philosophical debates that have been going on. I have to come up with a name for when you reveal your deep-seated bias of growing up in a conservative household. Okay. You associate lowercase c conservatism with American values. Fair thing to call me out on, but I, maybe I've been miscommunicating then because that's not really what I mean. I mean, what you're talking I, about I is kind of the rugged rugged individualism of the West of, like, leave me the F alone. I, I, I like do, libertarianism almost. I do like feel very like strongly, that. and this is not necessary. Uh, look, it's hard to uh, it's hard to psychoanalyze yourself from the inside. So you know me very well, and you, I actually welcome your uh, psychoanalysis. I, I don't think this comes from my upbringing. Further, re- we talked about this. But I, at length. I, I completely agree with, with conservative family. No, but I do. I, I completely I do agree feel, with what you're saying. I do feel strongly. Like, like my understanding of history, political science, and the world as it is, is that there are the kind of humanist philosophical battles that have been occurring since the Enlightenment (laughs) involve sometimes two, sometimes three camps of philosophy. There is the rugged individual, um, often associated with a lowercase c conservative worldview. There is a uh, societal organization or socialist uh, humanist worldview of how society should be organized that is very prevalent in Western Europe. Uh And then there's, uh, there's some weird kind of uh, natural law, natural selection, survival of the fittest, like Nazi shit going on. Um, <laughs> that I think is typified by um, a lot of governments around the world in the past and present. But well, let's keep it to the first two examples. That in in a in a philosophical political science struggle between valuing the right and integrity of the individual over the right and integrity of the society and how those things, when they are at odds with one another, which side wins? Uh-huh. Western Europe and what would we would classify largely as socialism uh, often would be uh, against the rights of an individual, uh, the right to privacy, the right to property ownership, the okay. right to even to bodily integrity, right? The right to vaccinate or not vaccinate yourself or your child. I mean, this there's a whole panoply of issues mm-hmm. that are tied up in this. And I would, the way I see the world, for better or worse, is not a value judgment, is not an endorsement, but it's that the United States of, the United States of America for 240-ish years has been on the right of that spectrum compared to Western Europe mm-hmm. and is still humanist and is still liberal in ways, uh-huh. right? But it is far more skewed to a value system oriented towards the individual. And in that value system, I would place I would place the right to choose right next to the right to uh, the right to kind of property ownership and privacy and uh, sexual liberation. And the really long point I'm making here, but the really long point I'm making here is that I'm just trying to point out an area where our modern cultural political parties are not mapped one to one to long standing overarching orders. political philosophy of our world and our human culture. And that makes for interesting. And rather than just being an armchair philosophical bullshitter point, right? I actually, my view. My view is that, like, though those places, like, look for those places. Those are the estuaries of the political world, right? Like, the places where our temporary culture, the moment of now, the recency bias, when it meets the long standing arc of human history and the philosophical evolution of humans, 
the places where those mismatch are the places where the interesting things are happening, the places are happening, the places where the struggles are happening, the places where the wars are happening, the places where the conflicts are happening. Do you, are you associating the, um, I, I feel like there's a, the Republican Party and who some of them, I think, consider themselves small C conservative and some of them probably don't. Um, but there, I think that small C conservative, the Republican Party is 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 in a place right now where you, you can see it. The Tea Party, the Tuesday group, the, you know, all these different factions within the Republican Party are, are really having trouble getting anything done because I think of this, this issue that, that you're talking about where some of them are descended from a small government fiscal responsibility conservatism. But there's a large portion of the Republican Party that now, in my mind, has largely taken over and really represents them, which is the religious right. And so I have trouble, in my mind, gun safety, pro-choice, and vaccinating your children and believing in the science of vaccination and vaccinating your children are all while they are maybe intellectually dissonant from one another, I see exactly what you're saying, right? You know, the principles of bodily autonomy, et cetera. I think they are descended from this humanist tradition that you're referencing. That's why I feel comfortable espousing these various principles. Yes, you should get your children vaccinated, but no, you don't have the right to tell me um, if I can or cannot get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel comfortable living there in living in this place of uh, contrary beliefs because I feel that it's descended from a um, the same value set. If that makes sense. It, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I feel the same way. I don't feel any conflict. I think that it's what's interesting about what you said about, like, to you, it's their points on this humanist arc is as we move into the future and we're going to have new political issues, like issues that we have, we really can't even fathom. Yeah. Are we going to, not just you, not just the three of us in this room, but are we as Americans or we as humans going to use those arcs to come up with our points of view? Or are we going to kind of do philosophical gymnastics to arrive at a point that better suits, you know, where we are? You know what I mean? Like Better suits the political futures of our party. Exactly. Yeah. So really, I think you're talking about kind of transhumanist uh, political philosophies that might be coming in the future. Because like, one of the biggest, but, but but also, you know, we talk about like um, a world where you know where robots are running everything, right? And so, like, what does it mean? What what does the concept of labor look like? And what side are you on in terms of? I mean, a fully automated world changes. Everything about everything about yeah. changes everything about capitalism changes everything about social dynamics. We're going to have a lot of new questions to answer. So it's not just about transhumanism, although that's certainly part of it. But it's like just the human element of of that. Well, that's how I think I would class if I had to give it a label ten or twenty years before it really comes to a head. That's oh. my best guess at what it would be called: transhumanist political philosophy rather than humanist political philosophy. Because, like, um, well. The, <laughs> That's a 17-hour hole to go down. 
Um, <laughs> I. Hmm. Fun fact about town halls. What? Which is the first town hall on record was in the then town of Dorchester, Massachusetts. Mm. What do you mean then town is no longer Dorchester? No, it's been annexed by Boston. Oh. So it's a neighborhood in Boston. But uh, so Dorchester, Massachusetts, 1633, three years after the town was founded, they said uh, maybe it's a good idea if we got together every Monday morning to just talk about what's going on. So every Monday at 8 a.m., they had a town meeting. The original Monday morning meeting. Yeah. That sounds great. Wanted to talk about Gabby Giffords getting shot in the head and then calling out (laughs) Republicans for being fucking idiots for whining about town halls. That's what uh, that's what my super she's my super pack is named after a quote of hers. What is it? Um, it's called "One Vote at a Time," and the quote is: "If uh, Congress won't change gun laws, then we'll have to change Congress one vote at a time." I have a kind of what I'd like to at least propose be like a kind of closing point that I want reactions on. I don't want I don't want the last word, but I want to posit a potential near future and, and have both of you say whether you think that that's. Um, potentially going to occur. So looking, like extrapolating out to the, from the question from before, if what we get in the next few years is a Tea Party and Freedom Caucus of the left and we become further polarized, what's the end game? Where are we going with all this? A hypothesis that I have is what if we enter a world whereby we have long protracted periods of, for lack of a better word, government paralysis and kind of World War One kind of trench warfare style, <laughs> like wars of attrition for every one, instead of one inch in the Battle of Verdun, right, or one meter, it's one House seat, one Senate seat, one mayorship, one governorship. And these long periods of government paralysis are punctuated by brief moments of supermajorities that cram through as much stuff as they can um, and then return to long periods of um, of paralysis. I think there's a fundamental difference between and I'm revealing my bias here, but I think there's a fundamental difference between a a democratic supermajority and a Republican supermajority. Um, and I think one is that I think the difference is that gov- Democrats believe in government and believe in the the power of the government to help people. I think that's an organizing principle of the Democratic Party, whether it happens in practice, another thing. And I think the Republican Party and organizing principle of it is the not not quite the inverse but but definitely on the other side of that so i fear i fear that you know in a republican supermajority the the you know the place where they go is is uh taking away the power of other people to change and i and i I think democrats are honestly too nice for that i mean not too nice because there's a lot of shitty democrats but i you know a democratic supermajority we had one and we passed health care like that's that's what a democrat right like that's uh we should have used the opportunity to disenfranchise uh conservative voters (laughs) right (laughs) i want to point quickly but i want you to react eddie but i want to point quickly to what something you said uh in in an ongoing meta list from this podcast Mm -hmm. of yet another 
another way that government is not a business. Imagine running a business. You're not even running a business. You just work at a company. We've all worked at companies before. You're working at a company. You're interviewing someone for a job. And you sit down and you say, welcome, it's so nice to meet you at Acme, uh, you know, Acme Acme Paperweight Company. Why do you want this job? And the reply is, I don't believe in this company. I believe this company should be ripped apart from the inside. And so I'd like to be hired so that I can destroy it and, you know, rein in its uh, overreach and excesses. Hi, Steve Bannon. How are you doing? That person would never get hired. So yet another way, government's not like a business. People can get hired. People can, in quotes, hired. People can get elected that don't agree with the operating, uh, the, the mission, vision, and values of government itself. Or right? the right of the government to yeah, exist at all. If there should be any litmus test to serve in government, it's do you believe in government and do you want to work to make government as effective as possible? And not do you want to burn the damn thing to the ground? Right, right. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to... Um, I want to give you an opportunity to plug any websites, oh. projects, Twitter handles, anything that you'd like while well, you've got roughly 148, yeah, well, 152 hello. people. Hello, 100 and, yeah. It's an honor, honestly. This is really fun. And I'm, uh, I assume that the people that listen to a conversation like the one that we just had are the people that I would like to be talking to. So I am the founder of a super PAC called One Vote at a Time, which is a grassroots progressive super PAC made of female filmmakers. And we are fighting for progressive causes by using our skills as filmmakers to tell stories about people impacted by issues. So that's what that's what I'm working on right now. And people can find me on Twitter uh, at the silly Sully. Um, I made my Twitter handle in uh, late college when I didn't really know what I was going to do next. One day when you're ready for president, you can change I, honestly, it. Honestly, I, I know the you can change silly. it, but I feel a sense of history. Well, so... Wow. My, my Twitter is the Silly Sully, and my Instagram is Serious Sully. <laughs> so I like I like having to yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And honestly, it's probably the opposite. Like I'm pretty <laughs> fucking serious on Twitter, and pretty uh, fairly silly on Instagram. So fantastic. So uh, find you at the Silly Sully on Twitter, and um, check out One Vote at a Time. Is there a URL you can give us for One Vote at a Time? Um, you can follow us on our Facebook page, which is Facebook.com/slash One Vote Two Thousand Six. Cool. Yeah. Sarah. Because it was made in 2006. <laughs> I, can I update that's, that? That's going to age well. That, well, that, you know, it, it, I, I got to learn to do the internet better, it sounds like, huh? I learned this lesson uh, with my AAM screen name. Yeah. Dukakis 88. <laughs> yeah. No way. No, no, it was like... That uh, would have been the best AAM screen name. I want to say name. it was like uh, Little Yoda 09, because I was nine. <laughs> Zeal Sorrow 46. Wow. What are you? Mmm. I, I've always been the Dalai Lama. Really? Oh, that's a good one. On like instant messengers and stuff. Yeah, that was the one that I first mm-hmm. I am you at. But by then I had changed. That's a good <laughs> internet name. I don't think you belong in this club. <laughs> you gotta like, do you have like a, you don't have any silly internet names in your past? Uh, that's, a, that's a clever. What about email address? No, they were all, they were all just Nick Dalai at blankety blank dot blank. Come on. Yahoo dot something. No. SBCGlobal.net. <laughs> Sorry, I'm boring, guys. No, I mean, I... So serious. I was born with a bow tie on, actually. So very <laughs> weird. Um, all right. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for being here. It was super fun. 
And uh, we'd love to have you again. Uh, Maybe we can focus on Super PACs a lot next time. Sure. I have a ton of questions about your experience. I have answers. Awesome. You can follow us on Twitter, at RobotFKennedy. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And if you really like us, please think of a friend who would be interested in... Uh, all the things that we discussed today or any previous episodes and let them know where they can find our podcast. Thank you for listening.